You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon. It's now some time since I interviewed Neil Sheldon KC in an episode which has since become one of our most popular on the podcast concerning disaster avoidance for experts. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Margaret Baron KC of One Crown Office Row to the podcast for the very first time to provide us with an update on avoiding disastrous expert evidence and the benefit of her wealth of knowledge advising in high value, complex clinical negligence cases. Margaret, you are very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emma. It's a delight to be here. To kick us off, we start with Radia and Marks, a case with unusual facts. Margaret, can you tell us a little bit about the background to this case? Certainly. The claimant, Mr Radia, was employed in the city, but he sadly developed a, a serious condition of acute myeloid leukaemia. He brought a number of claims against his former employer, alleging disability discrimination. During the course of that, he was found to be dishonest and as someone regulated by the FCA, he was subsequently dismissed from his job as an analyst. He then decided to bring a claim against Mr Marks, who was the single joint expert haematologist who had provided evidence at the Employment Tribunal hearing. He alleged that Mr Marks had misreported his account of his own symptoms, particularly with regard to his weight loss following the treatment for leukaemia. And he said that Mr Marks had failed properly to review his records, which were substantial, which resulted in errors in his report. The case was heard by Mrs Justice Lambert, who first of all had to discern what, if any, duty an expert in these circumstances owed to the claimant and both sides oddly as she herself found were entitled to and did call experts to give evidence as to what the standard of expert evidence was provided by Mr Marks. That is an oddity and, and one which one has to wonder why it was allowed to happen. So it was a curious background and Mrs Justice Lambert was faced with an unusual and actually rather fascinating set of facts which are worthy of a full read if anybody has the time. In terms of why at the court's findings in this sort of novel claim and on these unusual facts are interesting to those approaching expert evidence in their own cases, what are the takeaways for practitioners? Well, it was interesting because she expressly, Mrs Justice Lambert expressly said that a case of this sort should say that Mr Radia's prime motivation in suing Mr Marks was because an incredibly large costs order was made against him at the behest of his former employers by the tribunal of many hundreds of thousands of pounds. So he had a financial loss that he was obviously seeking to address. Uh, And what she found was, and this is the test or the lesson for claimants, is that uh, making this type of claim, uh, a sort of satellite claim against an expert who's opined against you or you feel has opined against you, you can't have it. It's not a second bite of the cherry. There cannot be, she said, a collateral attack on decisions made by a previous tribunal. And indeed, counsel in this case didn't seek and couldn't seek to go behind the findings of that tribunal, which had been extensively appealed unsuccessfully by Mr Radia. 
for defendants, one issue arose, and that was the rather piecemeal and not terribly well-ordered way in which the medical records were disclosed to the expert. He had some which arrived before he saw uh, Mr Radia in person to get his history. He got some afterwards, they came in chunks, and they were poorly ordered. And as we all find, some of them were printed sideways, which, yes, you can turn them round, but obviously makes life more difficult. And he was up against time constraint as well. And all of that mattered because one of the issues that arose was it was alleged that he ought, once he found or ought to have found that there was a discrepancy on the weight issue with Mr Radia claiming to have lost more weight than he in fact had at the time of his discharge from hospital, it was said that he, the expert, should have gone back and trawled through the notes to get to the bottom of this issue. But the judge, in fact, found that that was an unfair criticism and he hadn't done it, but she, he, she found that that was not a breach of his duty of care. He did, of course, have a duty to the claimant, but the duty owed did not extend, as she found, to protecting this man or indeed any claimant from a risk of a finding of dishonesty. He had made mistakes, Mr Marks, in the way he'd done his report, not that they'd been picked up on or acted on by the claimant or his, his legal team at the tribunal, but nevertheless they weren't breaches of duty in the true legal sense and he failed both in contract and in tort. For experts, I suppose one could say one has to be careful about what one opines on. This will be picked up in one of the later cases we're going to look at. But to be fair to Mr Marks, he wasn't seeking to argue that Mr Radio was a liar. He was asked in terms at the hearing, do you think this undermines his credibility, to which he gave an answer. But Mrs Justice Lambert expressly said that was an improper question that he should not have been asked and he should not have been required to answer. Uh, so Mr Marks really came out of this pretty well, Mr Radia very badly, with presumably yet another cost order against him. Yes, it didn't turn out very well for Mr Radia, but certainly in relation to Mrs Justice Lambert's approach to a lack of need for perfection in expert reports, I imagine experts up and down the land are breathing a sigh of relief that in fact, while mistakes that they make might be less than ideal, they do not mean that they have failed in their duty in providing expert opinion. No, I think that's right. I mean, this is not to be seen as a green flag for experts to make mistakes uphill and down dale. This expert was found not to have been in breach of his duty of care. But I think there were one or two aspects where she probably went pretty close to thinking he had not covered himself in glory. And indeed, as I say, he made admissions himself that he had failed to pick up that the weight on discharge was not as described to him by Mr Radia. Uh, it was suggested, for example, against him that he ought to have discerned this and he ought to have gone back to the claimant to discuss it. But he said, Mr Mark said, that's not my job, particularly when I'm the joint expert. And with that, the judge agreed. He said, I might have gone back to the solicitors and flagged it up with them, but then surely it was for them to pursue. And I think that must be right, because on a single joint expert basis, it's not for him to do a follow-up. He had to see the claimant to discuss his health, because his whole point of being instructed was to help assist the tribunal with the effects of this very serious condition upon the man's ability to work, his length of recovery, and therefore he needed to speak to uh, Mr Radia himself to find out what Mr Radia said the effects had been. Of course, they were grossly exaggerated, which is part of the reason Mr Radia came so badly unstuck. He also lied with regard to a holiday in Mexico when he had alleged he'd missed almost all of it, when in fact it turned out he'd been there for about three weeks. 
which went down badly with the tribunal, amongst many other things. And indeed, the tribunal primarily found that he had brought claims which he knew as an intelligent man could never succeed, which is a bad start to any claim um, in the tribunal or in the courts. So uh, Mr. Radio was the author of his own misfortune, but it has certainly been a very expensive exercise for him. Well, next up is Bucks and the General Medical Council, a case involving the generation of questionable expert reports on a, quote, industrial scale, unquote. Margaret, please can you tell us who is Mr. Bucks and why was he erased from the medical register? Dr. Bucks, I'm not entirely certain what medical qualifications Dr. Bucks had. He plainly was a doctor, but I don't know what particular area of expertise he held. But anyway, so he's a doctor and he was asked uh, by a firm of solicitors, of which his wife was one of the partners, to prepare between 2016 and 2017 the grand total of 684 reports about um, holiday travel sickness. Uh, and he, as I say, primarily those um, requests came from his wife's firm. He wrote them in a, frankly, fairly shoddy form, it would seem. Um, the Mr Justice Mostyn, in this case, was less than polite about them, as had others been. They were formulaic, all reached the same conclusion, that people had developed enteritis and they deserved compensation. And because they were low value, a lot of the insurers for the travel firms paid out. But then one or two questioned things, and that's when it began to unravel for Dr Bucks. Well, the case is particularly interesting because of what Mr Justice Mostyn said about conflicts. And I was wondering what you think the takeaways are for lawyers and experts about that particular topic. Absolutely. It's obviously a thing of Mr Justice Mostyn. He's commented on it in other cases about the role of experts within GMC proceedings because he's now done a number of these GMC appeals when, or I say medical practitioner tribunal appeals, sorry, I'm ageing myself and dating myself, um, because this was Ms. Dr. Bucks's appeal against the decision to erase him from the medical register. He, Mr. Justice Mostyn, first reiterated the duties of an expert pursuant to Part 35 of the CPR, and he said that an expert has a duty to disclose actual or potential conflicts noting that there is still, despite mention of this being a sensible requirement as long ago as I think 2004, that there is no explicit reference to this either in the rules or the practice directions, which is a curiosity because one would have thought that conflict of interest is um, pretty crucial with regard to experts, uh, and yet for some reason that doesn't appear to have featured within the rules. It does feature in some guidance given to experts, But that is not as good, obviously, as it being in either the CPR or the practice directions. And he defined conflict, as he said, conflict of interest, or perhaps you should say conflict of interest, will arise when an expert witness's opinions are either actually influenced or capable of being influenced by his personal interests, or there's a potential conflict might arise where the facts are reasonably suggestive of such a conflict. The actual conflict is is going to be unusual and could involve and would involve uh, considerable moral turpitude. Potential conflict is much more likely to be what one is considering or the court is having to consider. It won't involve any wrongdoing, but nevertheless is crucial that it is flagged up. He went on to look at what examples might be of that. And one, for example, and this one might be of interest because firms of solicitors do entertain experts as part of marketing, 
maintaining good relations. But one of the examples he gave was if a firm who instructs an expert took him for, say, a day of hospitality at Wimbledon in the previous year, is that something that the expert should disclose in his or her report? And in the view of Mr Justice Moston, it is. And I, I flag, flag that up because, as I say, entertainment, although I think everyone has got much more conscious of the need to be entirely open and proper, these things now need to be drawn to attention and the other side's attention. And if it, there is a potential conflict, then he stressed in his judgment that it must be identified at as early a stage of the proceedings as it possibly can be. And even if the instructing party doesn't think the conflict is material, it's not for them to decide as he stressed, it's for the court and not the parties to decide if a conflict is material or not. I should say, in this instance, Dr Bucks, it went far beyond all of that. Dr Bucks, in fact, made a material and actually very wicked lie in response to... He, he was asked if he'd uh, ever received any advice about whether the writing of reports in these circumstances could create a conflict. He expressly said that he'd had advice from his professional body that it wouldn't, when in fact uh, the letter that he received said the complete opposite and said it's something you should disclose. That stopped him in his tracks for a bit, but then come 2016 he started writing reports again. Uh, so Dr Bucks was very much at the bad end of the scale, but it is important that experts remember that there is a high duty of candid disclosure on any expert who has any degree or belief other than one that is ludicrous or de minimis, that he or she may be under a conflict of interest. It must be disclosed as soon as possible. And I do think this is important because uh, this could derail many bits of litigation. We'll have satellite hearings as to whether someone is suitable to be an expert. It's very unsatisfactory and therefore the more open people are, the better. I mean, I have to say within medical claims, Experts are usually scrupulous to ensure that there is no such conflict. Although sometimes things slip through the net and way down the line, it's suddenly, oh dear, I just remember I trained the treating doctor in this case 19 years ago in Leeds or Manchester or wherever it happens to be. But then you disclose it. If it's thought to be a problem, it will get aired. But it, it ought to be disclosed as soon as anybody appreciates it. Sometimes that appreciation comes a little late. And certainly something that I think it's worth counsel asking the first time they come across any expert in con, um, you know, do you know anyone involved? Have you come across them? What interaction have you ever had to bottom some of that out in advance? But moving away now from someone like Dr. Bucks and now Mr. Bucks at the end of the spectrum, perhaps a little bit more middle of the road in a case involving dental negligence, and an expert who professed to have expertise in that area. It's a sober reminder to all experts to stay within their area of expertise. And the underlying claim is that of Robinson and Liverpool University NHS Foundation Trust, which subsequently became a wasted costs application. Margaret, can you tell us about the background to this case? Yes, Mrs Robinson had treatment uh, at a hospital under the care of that trust in Liverpool. And the she alleged that there was a failure by one of the maxillofacial surgeons to remove her upper left second molar under general anaesthetic. I'm not entirely certain what the basis for that was because we know little more about that. 
But she relied entirely for breach of duty and causation evidence on the evidence of an expert called Mr Mercier, who was a general dental surgeon. When his evidence concluded, the claimant dropped her case. And the trust then sought an order against the dentist in respect of its wasted costs, which were some 50 odd thousand pounds. Giles Collin of our chambers uh, took up the cudgels here, as he had done in an earlier case called Thermea, when he successfully managed to recover costs in not dissimilar circumstances, albeit with a rather different background. And he submitted on behalf of the trust that Mr Mercier should not have been giving evidence in the case at all and had failed to abide by his duty to the court to ensure he was the appropriate expert to assist the trust relied on concessions by the hapless Mr Mercier in evidence that he'd had no experience of surgical removal of teeth under general anaesthetic since 2000 when he'd served in the armed forces. He had no experience of consenting patients for the extraction of teeth under GA and the trust's expert witness, another Maxfax surgeon, was, as he agreed, better placed to give expert evidence. An understatement, if there ever was one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think that was quite kind, really. But the judge in Liverpool, I, yes, it was in Liverpool, Liverpool County Court, Judge Abigail Hudson, found that there had been a breach of duty to the court by Mr Mercier. And it, she concluded that when he got the instructions, it must have been obvious to him that he wasn't able to comment on whether a person exercising a wholly different role to him could be deemed negligent. He could have had no way of knowing whether the actual Maxfax surgeon's examination was within the body of practice of a reasonable body of surgeons or what such a surgeon should have done. As I say, he'd had no experience that was even vaguely comparable for about 15 years, but had done no general anaesthetic extraction since that time, not worked in a hospital setting. He had failed in his evidence at court to make any reference to the differences between his role and that of an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, and hadn't even addressed his mind as to whether there were differences to which he could not speak. He was described as having shown a flagrant and reckless disregard for his duties to the court, and had done so from the outset of preparing a report on subject matter in which he had no expertise. Unsurprisingly, in causation terms, it was found that, but for him, the claim would never have been brought, uh, say so the defendant had been put to costs, uh, substantial costs, liability, and as I say, a sum of just over £50,500 was awarded against Mr Mercier. So just as happened in the Thermea case, where it was a spinal surgeon or neurosurgeon, and I can't remember which he was, similarly, had, yes, consulted spinal surgeon, in different circumstances had a substantial cost order made against him, so too did Mr Mercier. And it is a timely reminder. This is a very stark example, again, of someone getting it wrong. But one does come across experts who are almost suitable, but not quite. And it is important, as you say, at the first conference, just to bottom out if one's got any concerns as to whether the expertise is matching, just to check that it is. Because sometimes solicitors, for very good reasons, struggle to find someone who would be able to do a suitable report and sometimes just think oh well this will probably be okay but it may not be i mean in mr messier's case it's sort of beggars belief as to how he anybody ever thought he was suitable but 
there it is. I sort of feel a bit sorry for him because one wonders if the solicitor perhaps could have headed this one off at the pass rather than letting it get to this stage. But there it is. It may have been direct instruction. Who knows? I don't know. We don't know enough about the background. But it was not a happy day for Mr Mercier. Not at all. And certainly an example of the enormous financial risk of failing to take your expert obligations seriously. Having to pay £50,000 to the defendant would have been an uncomfortable outcome. Absolutely. Final case is Andrews and Cranospan. This is not a clinical negligence case. It primarily concerns dust and noise odour. But it's highly relevant for clinical negligence lawyers. And certainly I found reading it extremely helpful, having been asked in not dissimilar circumstances to assist in joint expert discussions. So um, if you have ever come across a joint expert discussion where you've been asked for input, you must read this case. It is essential. But Margaret, perhaps you might tell us a little bit first about the background to this case. Certainly. As you say, not clinical negligence, all about dust. It was a claim brought by 159 claimants in a group litigation case. They all lived in somewhere called Chirk in Wrexham. And they claim that the defendant was liable to them in public or private nuisance by reason of dust, noise or odour emissions from the management or operation of a site at its wood processing and wood product manufacturing plant in said Chirk. The case had been grinding on for some time and there had been all sorts of problems with getting the expert evidence into a suitable form. The party seemed to squabble about almost everything, it's fair to say. There'd been a CMC first in 2018, so nothing had exactly moved along a pace. But by an order of late 2018, permission was granted to each party to have an expert in the discipline of dust analysis and monitoring. Sorry, I, I laugh, but gosh, lucky experts. But also to have an expert in dust modelling. Quite sure what dust modelling is, but that's because I don't do this sort of work. Anyway, those and that both areas were to be covered on the claimant side by the same expert, a Dr Gibson. So the point came that the expert meetings were to take place and Dr Gibson, having served various reports, was to have his joint meeting. And the meeting started in early 2021, but went on. I, I think the warning bells should have been starting to ring really because it seemed to take months for them to come to any sort of conclusion and it suddenly became apparent to the defendants that the claimant's expert, Dr Gibson, had actually been communicating with the claimant's solicitor with various iterations of the draft of the joint statement and comments being made on those drafts by the claimant's solicitor, which were then sent to the expert, Dr Gibson. Some were entirely innocent, typographical errors, requesting more clarity, although that's getting a bit dodgy. But it was accepted on behalf of the claimant that in 16 instances, the claimant solicitors had commented or made suggestions on issues of substance. And at the hearing before Senior Master Fontaine, who had the unhappy task of trying to manage the piece of litigation, David Hart from our chambers, who was only brought in at this stage to try and bring a bit of order to it, it was acknowledged that on behalf of the claimant, that it was inappropriate for the claimant's solicitors to have provided comments solely to Dr Gibson, and Dr Gibson shouldn't have responded. It was wrong for an expert to solicit input from their own solicitor during the process of drawing up a joint statement, and perhaps 
even more wrong for the solicitors to have provided that input. And it was accepted that this was a serious transgression of the rules. So, no, they put their hands up, as they had to do, frankly, but it was the right thing to do, plainly tactically right. What the claimant sought to argue was that having made these confessions of breaches and acceptance of severe, serious transgression of the rules on joint meetings or the way to deal with experts, the claimant sought to argue that nevertheless, despite all of that, it would be disproportionate to refuse permission to rely on this expert because of the fact that it would be potentially disastrous for the 159 households who were involved in the claim some £250,000 odd had been spent on his fees. He'd been in the case for over three years. So finding someone else to take it, take up the reins and presumably start again effectively would be incredibly expensive and a source of delay. And surely the best way for this to be dealt with would be for the defendant, now fully aware of the position, to cross-examine Dr Gibson and it to go to effectively to the weight of his evidence rather than to the admissibility of it. That didn't find favour with Senior Master Fontaine, who concluded that the claimant could not rely on the evidence of Dr Gibson. And really what comes out of the judgment is that the court was very concerned, the master, who has huge experience, was concerned that the impression was that Dr Gibson had become or was becoming something of an advocate for the claimant. And that, of course, is a feature that one does come across. And he'd rather sort of stepped aside from what should be his fundamental role, and that's as an independent expert whose primary obligation is to the court. And also he was very concerned that the solicitors for the claimant had been rather reluctant to reveal the full extent of the communications, and he was plainly very troubled by all of that. He did say, however, that the claimants could have permission to find a new expert, whether that is feasible in financial terms, I simply don't know. I, I'm not sure history relates or we do not know what has happened since in that piece of litigation. Uh, but it, it, as you said at the outset, it is absolutely vital that we, do, we as lawyers do not get involved in these discussions. We've always known it since the rules came in, which is now a long time ago. There was initially, as I recall it, a, a little bit of enthusiasm for people to try and stamp their mark as solicitors on what was oh, I say solicitors parties to stamp their marks on what was happening but that was very quickly stamped out and indeed people realized that it just simply wasn't on and of course the rules make it perfectly clear it is the expert who must give their opinions as paragraph 97 of the practice direction of CPR 35 makes clear experts must give their own opinions to assist the court and do not require the authority of the parties to sign a joint statement Paragraph 9.4, unless ordered by the court or agreed by all parties and the experts, neither the parties nor their legal representatives may attend experts' discussions. Well, it may not say in terms or to stick their nose in behind the scenes, but plainly, by analogy, it's there. Uh, and we all know that it simply is not. And sadly, in this instance, that was the ramification of what had happened, was to rule that the evidence was not admissible. Senior Master Fontaine does helpfully set out, and obviously this crops up quite often, I think, in the TCC. Um, he referred to a case called Danner UK and Freudenberg, in which the judge, who was a High Court judge, said that it's important for all experts to realise what their position is. 
within the context of joint statements is she said this, there may be cases which should be exceptional where a party or its legal representatives are concerned, having seen the statement that the expert's views as stated in the joint statement may have been infected by some material misunderstanding of law or fact. If so, then there's no reason in my view why that shouldn't be drawn to the attention of the experts so that they may have the opportunity to consider the point before trial. That, however, will be done in the open so that everyone, including the trial judge, if the case proceeds to trial, can see what has happened and, if appropriate, firmly discourage any attempt by a party dissatisfied with the content of the joint statement to seek to reopen the discussion by this means. So it is important that one is open at all stages and plainly that went horribly wrong in the case of Andrews with the ramifications that it has that all these wasted fees, as it's turned out, uh, and potentially 159 claimants uh, not being able to pursue the litigation that had been going on for about four years. One of the interesting things for me is that the case you referred to is essentially codified in the Technology and Construction Court Guide, but that might not be something that junior clinical practitioners, clinical negligence practitioners, are aware of. And so I think reading this judgment at the point at which you might be asked for input in relation to joint expert meetings is essential. As we say, it's nothing to do with clinical negligence, this case, but it is so important in terms of the principles outlined therein. Margaret, thank you so much for that whistle-stop tour of everything that lawyers, that experts should have in the back of their mind when they are involved in these sorts of cases. If there was one tip you might give counsel to help avoid disastrous expert evidence experiences can I ask what that what that would be uh, do you have one <laughs> uh, I mean obviously <laughs> trying to get the best experts involved in every case which is not always what one can achieve um I, I think it is making sure your expert has done his or her homework does know what the records show if it's a clinical case because that is often something that get they get caught out on and that's infuriating because if the records are in a sensible format and are not all printed sideways as we do see all too often and the ctg isn't looking like the, an ant trail across the middle of the page so frankly they never quite get around to looking at it i'm being unkind but it is a real problem so you want to make sure your expert is completely primed not so that they can spout the records and know where everything is but that they feel comfortable that they are not going to be taken by surprise by something factual about the case Obviously, make sure that your expert is the right person opining on the right area, which isn't always as easy as it sounds, but for a lot of our cases, it's fine. But sometimes there can be a particular you know, area of expertise, say in a vascular case, when there is a particular procedure that only very few people do. It can be really difficult because there may only be five, six, seven people in the country who do such procedures, in which case it does get very difficult. But if you don't have someone who's got the expertise in that procedure then like Mr Mercier, the dentist, you potentially run the risk of disaster with the other side saying, well, how can you possibly opine on this? You simply don't have the experience. So get someone with the right experience, make sure they really know their stuff and keep your fingers crossed that it all works out. As we all know, um, litigation has its thrills and spills and there's no such case where you are absolutely home and dry with experts. But most experts who've got the experience know what they're doing. You don't want one who's too experienced. You want one who really is highly competent, highly intelligent and does the job well, which is easier said than done. But 
with a fair wind, things tend to work out pretty well. Well, thank you, Margaret, so much for that and for your analysis of those cases. As always, we will link to each of the cases that we mentioned today on the blog post accompanying this podcast. And all that remains for me to do is to say thank you so much on behalf of our listeners for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. LawPod UK is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon and produced by One Crown Office Row.